Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Josias Podcast. We're talking about Eric Vogelin today, and Potter and I are joined by the ever-interesting, ever-insightful, ever-controversial Gabriel Sanchez. How's it going, Gabe? It's going just fine, Joel. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. And you, Potter? I'm sick as usual. (laughs) (laughs) So we were listening to uh, Richard Strauss as our intro music, which I picked because, uh, hey, it's a kind of a nice piece of music uh, and uh, sort of fit with some of the themes that we'll be discussing today of Gnosticism, but most importantly, because it's Ric Flair's walkout music. And as we all know, Gabe is a professional wrestling expert, and I thought it was particularly <laughs> fitting for him. Oh, Nick, uh, Nick Flair is a, is a professional wrestler? Yes. <laughs> well, only the greatest of all time. So, okay. Yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> all right. I, was, I was trying to ask them who this person was uh, before we started recording, but they wouldn't enlighten me. Woo! <laughs> uh, so let's let's begin. We're we're sort of uh, focusing on the new science of politics, which is one of uh, his most famous books and uh, beloved by uh, uh, sort of the Buckleyite National Review crowd. Uh, but before we talk about that, let's just, Gabe, maybe you could put Eric Vogelin in the context of uh, you know our sort of crowd. Why should people care? about Vogelin. What did he say that was important? What was sort of the trajectory of his career? Well, I mean, I think for our crowd, um, and I guess I look at this episode as sort of dovetailing with the episode that Potter and I did about Leo Strauss. I mean, Eric, right. Vogel, Eric Vogelin was a contemporary of Strauss, um, born and raised in Austria, and was, you know, a, a important contributor to sort of the Vienna intellectual circle between World War One and World War Two, And uh, emigrated to the United States after the Nazis tried to arrest him. He uh, escaped to Switzerland and came here. But he, I mean, uh, it's it's hard to um, compact Vogelin down because he wrote so much and was involved in so many different, um, how should I say, I don't even want to say intellectual trends, but he was certainly a, a, um, a critic of modernity, um, similar to Strauss. I mean, he saw that, you know, especially starting in the 19th century, that all these mass political movements, um, socialism, communism, Marxism, Nazism as well, he, he at least initially posited the idea that these were all um, Gnostic at their source, that these were all attempts to escape reality and recreate the world in a, in a new image. Um, he also was very critical of the idea that, you know, um, how should I put it? He... Again, it's it's hard because there's a whole evolution in his thinking. But basically, he starts from early on in his career looking at the you know the history of political ideas and how those were um, how should I say uh, th- how they were warped by um, ideologies after the Enlightenment, and then he sort of switched to I guess one would say a, a philosophy or a theory of consciousness, basically positing the idea that you know human consciousness is very fragile, the world is very uncertain. People have a hard time dealing with reality, and so instead of you know just enduring and waiting for you know the, the payoff at the end of time, you know the eschaton, um, people are prone to um, try to remake the world and you know in their own image. And and he yeah very critical so, of that. So yeah, we'll we'll get into some of that later. But I guess 
So as someone who has not read as much of his work uh, uh, as maybe others, I guess what I sort of think of him is, like you said, he's like Strauss in that he's one of the sort of 20th century critics of the uh, unreflective uh, uh, idea that the Enlightenment was this great unmitigated good uh, on the right. And he's, he's, he's like Strauss. He's kind of... I don't know if it's fair to say that he's on the right, but that's sort of uh, the milieu that he he, uh, he, he would have been uh, found himself in. Well, he he certainly would have been angry about that. And he and actually, if you look um, in his collected works, there's two volumes of his letters. And after he sort of got popular, um, he was even on the cover of Time magazine, I believe, after Buckley um, popularized, you know, don't immunitize the eschaton. He was very uh, upset that he was being viewed as a quote-unquote conservative thinker, even though actually, I mean, ironically enough, he spent the last years of his career at the Hoover Institute um, at Stanford, <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, I, I think of these episodes along with the McIntyre episodes oh. as being sort of like uh, precursors of or early critiques of liberalism and of the Enlightenment, sort of from the right and from the left, whether or not, I mean, that's obviously perhaps a little reductive. And, uh, you know, there's nothing better than railing against uh, uh, popularity once you become popular, right. saying sure. all these popularizers don't understand my thought. That's uh, yeah. it's one of the real one perks of, of being an intellectual. One of uh, um, professors at the University of Vienna was uh, the... The, the man whom we've, in a previous episode, called the Jedi Master of Positivism, namely Hans yes. Kelsen. And Kelsen actually wrote a long critique of, uh, of the new science of politics because he considered it to be you know, an attack on positivism, which it in part it, is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a trenchant critique of positivism. But um, Kelsen never ended up publishing his critique. Uh, and in his autobiography, Fickerling surmises that it's because he realized that it would damage his own reputation more than Fickerling's if he did. <laughs> That's hilarious. So wait, how do you how do you pronounce? Uh, oh, I'm, oh, I'm, I was about to comment gonna... on that. So, <laughs> so, so um, actually, the only two people I've ever heard in my life comment or um, pronounce Fickerling's name uh, in the proper Austrian way is Potter and Mark Lilla. And then I saw Mark Lilla be corrected in public. That apparently when Vogelin immigrated to the United States, he did not want his name um, pronounced uh, like he was an Austrian. Okay. So, he, so, so, I mean, it's it's, so it, it's 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 the young Frankenstein. <laughs> right. <laughs> My name is Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah. Well, since the two of you are in the United States, you can use the American pronunciation. But since I'm calling him from Austria, I'll use the Austrian pronunciation. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> so let's let's start. So. Uh, the new new science of politics, uh, I guess it was originally called Truth and Representation. Oh, just... Uh, And it's really... Sorry, just... uh, What? uh, Sorry to interrupt, but I was just going to say, he was actually born in in Germany, in Cologne, and they moved to Austria when he was a little kid, just to... Isn't it it Cologne if you're you're German? (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Let's be let's be consistent. In fact, you just speak German for the rest of the podcast, and we'll uh, we'll we'll reply in English as best we can. All right, sorry uh, for the interruption. Go on. That's all right. That's all right. So it was originally called Truth and Representation, and it starts with a critique of positivism, 
which I think is really uh, trenchant. So even though that's not really the whole of the book or even the, the sort of the gravamon or the central point of it, uh, I think it's kind of necessary to set up what he's trying to do. Uh, why don't we run through his critique of positivism uh, really quickly? Because I found it uh, uh, insightful, but also hilarious. Gabe, do you want to say a few words? No, I was going to let you jump in on this one. Um, <laughs> I took a lot of notes, <laughs> but I didn't take notes on that. So, Well, I mean, we can positivism in a way is, uh, in the social sciences, is the idea that you should apply the same method that um, is supposedly used in modern natural science, especially physics, to talk about social phenomena. Um, so it should be describing them in uh, a kind of neutral, objective manner, uh, which, and it relies on this distinction between uh, fact and value. That right. Is, and and it, the assumption is not just that you should apply the sort of uh, uh, mathematizing scientific method, even though they don't ever really apply that method because it's sort of impossible, impossible to yeah, do. Yeah. Uh, but the second assumption is that the method of natural science was a criteria for theoretical revel- relevance in general, which is, I think, where the fact-value distinction sort of ends up springing out of. So uh, right. he, he ha- he's very critical of this for a, for a bunch of different reasons. And one of the key reasons he's critical of it is because uh, when you're talking about uh, politics, you can't judge it without having some value. When you're talking about anything, you have to have some value by which to judge. You can't judge without, without having a criterion to judge based upon. So in other words, you end up smuggling value back in. Yeah. So, I mean, the positivist position is that value is irrational rationality is rationality is conceived of as being instrumental in the sense that it can only judge about means there's no way of rationally establishing what a good end is i mean value is is a is a kind of theory laden way of saying end um and so for weber who's who's sort of the most articulate uh positivist philosopher and sociologist Weber will will say that the the ultimate values are are just a matter of of choice in the end and so science can't establish them science can just take as given that people have chosen certain values and then say you know what are the means what the means are to achieve those values as right and what and what the consequences of those values will be if 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 they're chosen. Out, which is why he takes Weber to sort of point beyond uh, uh, what Weber states his philosophy is and, and what it really is, is, is positivism, but in a way he sort of points beyond positivism. Um, and so this is this isn't going to end up being... Uh, uh, so, oh, and I also, I also did like a very... He makes a very Aristotelian argument against Weber, which is that... Uh, uh, in order to degrade the politics of Plato, Aristotle, or St. Thomas to the rank of values, among others, a conscientious scholar would have to first show that their claim to be science was unfounded. Th- that attempt is self-defeating. 
By the time the would-be critic has penetrated the meaning of metaphysics with sufficient thoroughness to make his criticism weighty, he will have become a metaphysician himself, which is very similar to an article, uh, an argument, sorry, Aristotle makes about the necessity of philosophy. To refute philosophy, you have to do philosophy. Uh, Yeah, and particularly to refute uh, the classical philosophy here, you would have to understand it, and once you understood it, then you would understand that positivism doesn't make any sense. Right. And the other, the other point is that, uh, and this becomes relevant, is that, to the rest of the argument, is that the values of the uh, theoretician or whoever is studying politics, you can't separate yourself from the system. You're part of the general system, and you have to observe. Uh, you can't observe separately. In other words, the values actually make a difference. You can't just take them out of the equation and look at, you know, what happens in a value-free context. The values are there baked in, and you have to take them seriously. Right. Um, yes, okay. and, and ultimately and he agrees a, a with oh. Aristotle. Sorry. Well, oh. Potter and then Gabe. He agrees with what? Oh, Go I ahead, mean, Potter. Ultimately, Fergaline is a, a, is arguing that in... In Plato and Aristotle, for example, the ends um, that they elaborate there are not values in the Weberian sense. They're not just a choice, a, a random choice of something, but they're established by a rational understanding of being, um, what right. he calls an ontology. Right. And in fact, he'll end up saying that uh, positivism... And I really liked this point because it ties into a lot of a lot of uh, sort of our, our themes. Positivist thinking is, in fact, a variant of theologizing, which I take it to mean positivism has to state things about the final end, and also is kind of a belief system. You have to you have to buy into uh, uh, you have to buy into the positivistic system. In other words. Uh, to to engage in it. Yeah. Uh, so, Gabe, what, what were you going to say? I, I was just going to make the quick point, um, since Potter and I already talked about it. I mean, Vogelin's critique of positivism actually like, nestles up pretty well with um, Leo Strauss's critique of positivism, which we discussed previously yes. on the show. And actually, um, Leo Strauss and... It, it, I guess this is more of a biographical side note, but Strauss and Vogelin actually had a very intriguing correspondence um, for a number of years with each other until Vogelin realized that either Strauss directly or some of his students actually uh, intentionally hampered his attempts to get um, a higher academic position. Basically, Strauss wasn't... (laughs) Strauss didn't like competition, I guess I'll put it that way, and um, (laughs) was not very happy when he found out that Vogelin was working on... um, uh, the History of Political Ideas, which is a multi-volume work that actually was never published in Vogelin's lifetime, but Strauss thought it was going to be a competing work with his um, History of Political Philosophy, and so he wasn't happy about that. Also, as, since we have a, a very Catholic audience, I, I presume, um, the other interesting thing is... We have an audience? Well, we, we do, I think. And, <laughs> but, um, but in the Strauss-Vogelin uh, correspondence, it's interesting because not just their letters, but also I think it was uh, Father Ernest Fortin commenting on them, pointed out that basically, you know, Strauss was a 
um, how do you say, he, you know, an orthodox Thomist in the sense of keeping, um, you know, uh, re reason and uh, revelation separate, whereas Vogelin was just like Lubach and fell into his heresies because he he conflated the two together. Um, and you actually see Vogelin and Strauss um, accusing each other of this. You know, Strauss actually calls himself. He's like, well, from Catholic lights, I'm very orthodox, and you know, you're you're a heretic. Of course, this is the 1950s, and we know that's all going to change. But yeah. it's just interesting. Yeah. That a Lutheran and a Jew are arguing about you know who's more orthodox by pre-Vatican II Catholic lights. So yeah, in fact, Vogelin was was very well read in the new the Nouveau Theologie. He read uh, right. Delubac and particularly read a book of of Hansers von Balthasar's that he quotes here in the New Science of Politics. Right, book on I, I think that's actually where he gets most of his information on Gnosticism because I don't think at the time the texts were very well uh, disseminated. Right. So well, he had to rely. Uh, for Gnostic ideas, he had to rely on secondary literature. At least that's what—that's my understanding. Hans Jonas, who was a, another, he was a contemporary right. of them. Um, he had written the first volume of of his um, his work on Gnosticism, and also with Hans Jonas, also another interesting point on him is that he was a student of both Heidegger and um, Boltmann in back right. in Germany. And Boltmann actually, or I'm sorry. Even though he was technically a philosophy student, Heidegger gave him permission to study under under Bultmann and do his uh, dissertation on on Gnosticism. And then, of course, you know, 1933 happens and Jonas leaves uh, Germany and interest you know for a number of years until 1945. And Jonas had made a you know a pact with I don't know with himself or just swore that he would never come back to Germany ever again unless it was a unless he was a member of an invading army. And he actually was an artilleryman <laughs> in the British Army. And 12 years later, he returns to Germany, and he finds Boltmann. And first thing that Boltmann says to him, even though there's been 12 years, catastrophic war, you know, Europe is in flames, the first thing that Boltmann says to him is, did you finish the second volume on Gnosticism? You know, that was the most important <laughs> thing to him. <laughs> Keeping the important things right. important. And he ends yeah. up, I mean, Jonas, Jonas ends up accusing Boltmann and Heidegger of themselves being Gnostics. That right. sort of existentialism, Bultmann's sort of Lutheran existentialism and Heidegger's sort of secular existentialism, they both have a kind of Gnostic view of the material world as being uh, meaningless in itself. So I, I love that Strauss himself was engaging in this sort of academic jockeying uh, because certainly one gets the impression that his uh, epigenes engage in similar antics even to this day. But I do want to push back, and I don't want to uh, sidetrack everything. I'm not sure I would describe Strauss's uh, uh, account of the relation between faith and reason as orthodox Thomism. Uh, of course, that would involve us saying what it is and uh, engaging in tr trying to figure out if Stra Strauss always means what he's saying or whether he has a second meaning that's further down or or whether it ends up all being just nihilism at the end of the day. Uh, but I, you know, uh, I, I can never let, let something like that go by uncommented on. No, it's, it's fair. I mean, and it's, it's also well, hard it's to tell. Well, it's unclear that Strauss is... is... Potter, go yeah. on. It's unclear whether Strauss is, is convinced by, uh, by St. Thomas's natural theology, that is the proofs from natural reason of the existence of God. And right. And if you're not convinced of that, it's very easy to give an account where Athens and Jerusalem right. 
have these fundamentally separate and fundamentally incompatible uh, uh, accounts of reality that neither can prove the other is wrong, but you can't reconcile them. Whereas for Thomas, they are very much reconciled. Whereas, is it Averroes or Avicenna who's got the... Uh, there's one of the Arabs who has the... the two uh, truths uh, thing. Two truths, yeah. yeah. I think it's Averroes. It's yeah. Although, I mean, uh, that's also slightly controversial. But it, <laughs> we don't need to go into that. <laughs> but listen, you... <laughs> listen, this podcast exists for me to make controversial statements as if they're just, just truths that everyone agreed with. Let me, let me read one uh, quote before we move on from positivism. I, I, uh, I got a hold of... The, the, the Kelsen's critique of uh, Fergulin's uh, um, New Science of Politics was eventually published, though he didn't publish it himself. But I've, I've got a hold of a copy. And um, I think it was only published in 2004, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, anyway, so I want to read you the very first lines of his critique because it gives a very clear, uh, a very clear depiction of the positivist position. Um, and it shows that uh, Fögelin and Strauss were, were very fair to the positivists. That is, they weren't setting up any straw men. This is what people really thought. <laughs> okay, so here's Hans Kelsen. It is an undeniable fact that the extraordinary progress of science, that the extraordinary progress science has achieved in modern times is, in the first place, the result of its emancipation from the bonds in which theology had held it during the Middle Ages. The principle of truthfully describing reality and explaining it on a strictly empirical basis without having recourse to theology or any other metaphysical speculation is called positivism. It is another fact that a positivistic social science is not in a position to justify an established social order as the realization of absolute values. For it can evaluate a social institution only as a means appropriate to achieve a presupposed end, but inappropriate if another end is presupposed. That is to say, it can evaluate a social institution only conditionally, or it amounts to the same, it can attribute to it only a relative value. Value, positive or negative, meaning the relationship of a means to an end. This is a relationship of cause and effect and can be ascertained in a scientific way on the basis of, of human experience. Consequently, a positivistic social science cannot evaluate an end which is not itself a means for another end, but an ultimate end. It cannot evaluate a social institution unconditionally, or, what amounts to the same, it cannot attribute to it an absolute value. The absolute in general, and absolute values in particular, belong to a transcendental sphere which is beyond scientific experience, the field of theology and other metaphysical speculations. Hence, scientific positivism goes hand in hand with relativism. So, no wonder he didn't publish it. <laughs> it's like all that stuff you were saying I thought and was clearly absurd. I think it. Potter, uh, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't Kelson's critique pretty much as long as the book itself? It's like yeah, north of yeah, 100 yeah. pages, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, okay. yeah. exactly. Uh, so, but let's move right ahead. So, so... Uh, he sort of talks about symbol. He has this idea of symbol, which is kind of, uh, he, he's kind of using the term in a, a special way, a term of art for him. 
And he moves through uh, three sorts of symbols, cosmological, anthropological, and uh, soteriological, uh, and contrasts them with Gnosticism. So what does he take Gnosticism to be? Because it's not just the—he takes it as a type— of uh, he takes it as relevant in the modern world, in, in other words, like Nazism and communism and stuff like that, rather than just being an early and mostly forgotten Christian heresy. Well, let's let's take a, a one step back before we get to the Gnosticism thing, because the symbolism, the problem of symbolism of symbols and symbolism, comes up because the the opening question of the work, as it were, is political representation. Right. Right. He begins with this question, um, what is political representation and how does it come about? And then he distinguishes two kinds of things that are called representation. There's a kind of uh, what he calls elemental representation, which is kind of a, what we would call representative government in, in the modern West, where you have sort of um, procedures for uh, choosing certain officials to represent the rest of society. But then he says there's, there's a kind of existential representation that exists even without such procedures. If you look, for example, at the Soviet Union, it's right. not a representative government in sort of the, the you know, mainstream uh, Anglo-Saxon liberal sense of you know, having parliament, free parliamentary elections and, and multiple parties and so on, um, choosing representatives. But clearly, in some sense, the uh, the chairman of the the Communist Party in the Soviet Union or, or whoever, um, Secretary General, I guess, uh, in some sense represents the Soviet Union. And this is proven by the fact that he can act, that the Soviet Union can, as it were, act through him. We can say the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. And well, I guess that was later, but whatever, whatever the Soviet Union was doing at the time, right? You can say the Soviet Union does this, it Purging does itself. that, and it's because the leader, in some way, is able to act for the whole. That's what he means by representation. In some sense, the the ruler or leader of a of a society or a community or some kind of political um, right. Unit and and can he says not only that, he says the communists reply. So the, the Westerners will say, "What do you mean you have representatives? They weren't elected in uh, uh, by vote with a genuine choice, et cetera, et cetera." And the communists would reply that the true representative must have the interests of the people at heart, and that the exclusion of parties representing special interests is necessary in order to make the institutions truly representative. So it's not just that it's it's representation in like sort of in fact the way like a dictator could also say, yes, I, I represent the people because whatever I do, uh, they have to go along with. Uh, the communist argument is not only do we in fact represent our countries, but we truly represent them because we have their interests at heart. Yes. Yeah, so and another- it would only be less representative if we were to allow other parties that were, you know, Western imperialistic saboteurs to be represented or to have a chance at representation. Right. So there you see they're, they're competing theories about what makes representation. But it seems like Fugelin is going to try to take a step back both from the, the Anglo-American liberals and from the Russian communists and say, well, what do all these kinds of representation, regardless of what, what theory you have to justify it, 
what what do they all mean in the real world? And there it is right. going to be something like the dictator who in some way represents the country that he's ruling, even if he's tyrannizing over it. And right, right, right. So then he, he has that. In, at the beginning there, he goes to that French theorist, Aurieu, or whatever his name was, um, where he talks about how um, a political community has to be articulated to the point where it can act. And the one who's... Uh, the the first task of the ruling power in the way in a way is to bring that articulation to the point where then the ruling power is able to act for the community. Um, and that's at that point, that's when he then says, "Okay, now let's go into into the history of uh, political life and look at um, how representation, you know, how we can see." political representation through history. And that's where then you get these three different ways of symbolizing representation, which begins with sort of these uh, cosmic, the, the cosmic symbol where the political order is seen as reflecting the cosmic order. And he sees this in kind of ancient Near Eastern empires and even in the Mongol Empire where there's uh, the the ruler is able to represent the whole community because the ruler represents the order of the universe. Right, right. So it, it becomes, because he, he, he likes talking about uh, man and, and society as a sort of microcosm of the cosmos. And there's that, uh, uh, once you, he talks about uh, uh, the sort of cosmic liturgy that some of these societies have when they see themselves as representatives of the truth, i.e. God. And there's that great, uh, he, he quotes this great exchange between uh, Kuyuk Khan to Innocent the Fourth, where Innocent the Fourth sends representative saying, why did you murder all these people and invade these lands? And also you should be baptized and, you know, repent. Uh, and he sends it back, basically saying, you said I should be baptized. I do not understand your words. You say I invaded. I do not understand your words. And then he says, but so that you can understand me, let me explain to you. By the order of God, uh, the order of God, uh, both Genghis Khan and Ka Khan have been sent to make it known. Uh, those who you speak of did not believe in the order of God. They did not even meet in great council. They showed themselves arrogant and killed our envoy ambassadors. The eternal God has killed and destroyed the men in those realms. Save by the order of God, anybody by his own force. How could he kill or how could he take? And so the reply is basically, uh, what are you talking about? Uh, there's no We didn't make war on anyone. We are the rulers by the order of God and in truth. We simply sent our emissaries there, and to the extent they were rejected, we... Uh, 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 defeated rebels <laughs> right right uh so it's it's two truth systems uh competing against each other right so and, it's two cosmic uh i guess you could call them well and, and, and also i think either in this work or another one Volkman talks about i mean yeah from the mongol perspective the world is already theirs it's just not everybody's on board with the with the idea of that so, right yeah you're, you're exactly right and so um, you know, yeah, with these cosmological, because um, I think he, he, I'm trying to 
go back because uh, because it's anthropological, cosmological, then soteriological. I think I think I, it's cosmological first, and then the next section is about the next is uh, anthropological. Uh, yeah, anthropological right, with Plato. He brings Plato in. Right, that's the Greeks. Right, okay, and then and then goes to um, soteriological. But I believe he he classifies the Mongols as cosmological. Correct. Right. right. Yeah. 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 So, so that's sort of the co- the cosmological is when you like the Persians or uh, like a bunch of empires, you think of yourself as the uh, representative of 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 God, who is the eternal truth, and uh, you're simply spreading His truth, and it's it's a theological uh, politics. The next stage is uh, anthropological. So what, is he, what does he mean there? He talks about Plato and about the uh, uh, microcosm of man. Yeah, he, I mean, he brings in Plato's idea that the city is, is uh, like man on a grander scale. And he's, he argues that this uh, idea is, becomes, that Plato is able to develop this idea because of developments in Greek city-state life, where you have an articulation of community life down to the level of the individual, um, where the he gives an example of the the the, tra- the, trage- the tragedians. There's the tragedy of the suppliants that he interprets here, where you have uh, the king um, comes to the realization that he has to do justice to the suppliants, even though it's going to cause him to uh, have to go to war against Egypt, which is going to be you know from. Uh, a, a purely practical standpoint is, is not going to be a good idea. But then the king is able to persuade the, the citizens of the city that you know the, they should uh, follow Zeus's justice here. So the difference between this and the, the cosmological empires is that here you have um, an understanding of the, the soul of man um, as being capable of participating uh, in a universal order, such that representation will be not just a matter of imposing that order, but will be also a matter of persuasion, of persuading people to come to the truth of, the, of this order. And the order will be reflected in the soul of each virtuous citizen of the polis, um, which will then in turn strengthen the, the virtuous order of the whole. Yes. So... Uh just because of uh, time constraints here, let's move along pretty pretty quickly into the final one, which is the Christian edition, uh, the soteriological uh, stage, uh, and then and then get to the sort of heart of the book, which is where he starts talking about uh, what he calls the Gnostic. Uh, what does he call it? The Gnostic uh, Gnosticism, basically. Yeah. Well, I mean, one more note on the anthropological. Um, he sees there that uh, uh, sort of a key, a key to the order of the human soul is its openness to the divine. So the already the anthropological symbol has a, the anthropological understanding of representation has a theological element as well, um, and that's a key to see then the way it's transformed. Um, when Christianity comes along. Yes. So how is it just transformed when, when Christianity comes along? 
Christianity transforms it by the idea of participation in divine life through grace, which um, enables a friendship between God and man. He, he talks about how, for Aristotle, friendship between God and uh, human beings is impossible because there's not a common life. There's too great an inequality between them. But Christianity um, gives the, this possibility of participation in God through grace, which will sort of raise uh, humanity to uh, a superhuman level. Um, But the the problem, in a way, is that this fulfillment of uh, participation in the divine life uh, will only really come about in the beatific vision. And in the interim, in this what comes to be called temporal life, the time before uh, eternal life, um, we, Christians have to sort of put up with a, a sort of precarious situation where they have some they have some participation in God through grace but it's uh it's the substance of things unseen and the proof of things hoped for as it as they put it as it's put in right. the letter to the Hebrews so it demands faith right and this is where we see sort of the early uh he he talks about Augustine versus the millenarianism right how do you say that Millenarianism. Millenarianism. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, yeah. uh, an easier way to say it. <laughs> w- right. <laughs> Where Augustine's point is that uh, the thousand years that's that's referred to in the apocalypse is actually right now right. when the church is ruling. Uh, there's not going to be these fables of a, a a perfect realm are are ridiculous stories. Or he says something like yeah. that. Yeah. So before the last judgment. You're not going to get an end of conflict. You're going to have a certain peace, but it's the peace of the pilgrim city that comes from uh, having one's uh, love fixed on the eternal good, even though there's always going to be strife, strife with pagans, strife with Jews, strife with false Christians um, until until the last judgment. Right. Right. And just to, just to backtrack there, I noticed that Potter said... Um, the letter to the Hebrews. Who, who wrote that letter, Potter? Let's be controversial here. <laughs> well, it's traditionally uh, attributed to the Apostle Paul. Oh, here we go. Traditionally, okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> but, but not but, unanimously. I mean, there are some patristic voices who attribute it to Barnabas or to some other figure. Okay. All I know is that you know we should. Uh, <laughs> we've put off our knowledge. We're, we're much wiser now than the old traditional, and we can tell much better who wrote what. I assume I, I our next episode is going to be on Q. So, <laughs> but but getting back to um, what... Sesame Street's uh, special on Q, I thought was really insightful. Yes, yeah. All right. Anyways, back on track here, kids. Um, no, but um, but what Potter is saying is, yeah, it's, it's dead on. And, and again, I, I apologize having read, um, actually having spent most of my time in law school, not going to class and sitting in the library, reading Vogelin instead. Um, I can't remember which work it's in, but yeah, I mean, he describes um, in a very Augustinian way, you know, he describes history as, you know, the great boredom before the eschaton. Right. Um, and so... 
and that's that, that that goes right into where he starts discussing Gnosticism, which is basically yeah this this tension that you know Christians or anybody lives in, where you know you, like Potter was saying, you you have some participation, you know in in with God through grace, but the payoff is at the end of history, and in the meantime, you know you're sitting here waiting for you know waiting for the end to come, and there won't be the the, the great payoff in, in this life, and right. you know, Vogelin points out and says, well. People get are dissatisfied with this, and so they start to, you know, through their agitation, you know, want, want to, you know, basically pull in the, you know, the, the, the promised heavenly kingdom um, into this realm, into into the, into the temporal order, and that's where Gnosticism becomes a, you know, a real problem, um, not just at the beginnings of Christianity, but he sees it as a reoccurring force uh, throughout history. Right. Yeah, he calls it the the Gnostic speculation, which is. So, so there's 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 two things I think that he kind of brings out. The first is that the world, you have this disordered world, but it can be transcended by uh, extraordinary insight or learning or knowledge, and that's that's what he calls the Gnostic speculation, which is sort of the the key idea of Gnostics and, and sects similar to Gnostics, uh, which is why I uh, the sort of dualism there is is one of the reasons I chose that uh, piece for our intro music. Uh, uh, yes, but and, so you have this gnosis which allows you to transcend disorder, and then he ties that with when you really get trouble is when you have the desire to implement that gnosis and bring about the immunitize the eschaton as the as the catchphrase goes to to bring about a sort of heaven on earth in history. Yes, and that I mean one of the attractions of that gnosis is I mean gnosis just means knowledge, and. It's contrasted, Fergling contrasts it to faith. That is, the Gnostics have a, a kind of clarity and certitude that the Orthodox Christians don't have because faith is uh, the substance of things unseen. Whereas for the Gnostic, this knowledge comes from the fact that God is in some way already inside of them. It's a, it, There's a kind of... Uh, there's a... a a, dis- a destruction of the transcendence of God in the sense that um, God is, as it were, a part of me when I have this uh, this gnosis, this knowledge. And it's, as it were, the divine knowing in me that gives me this complete certitude. And then, as you say, that's what enables us, uh, that's what then enables the Gnostic to think that uh, the c- complete God can be all in all through what we do now in uh, in this world without waiting for the end of this world. Right. And then, you know, and obviously through the new science of politics, Vogelin was still very heavily um, attached to the idea that there's a, 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 gene, a, a genealogical um, connection of Gnosticism, that basically you can go back to the early Gnostics and find how it's transmitted all the way through 2,000 years of, of Western history. And, and I know this is a little bit beyond the book, but I think it's important to point out because I know a lot of people sort of, you know, connect Vogelin with Gnosticism and with this idea. But, you know, later on in Vogelin's writings through the 60s and 70s, um, you know, he'll refine his thesis to say, well, no, Gnosticism isn't necessarily, you know, that transmitted through a, through a series of ideas in Western history, but it's something that's actually embedded in, you know, in human consciousness. In other words, that you can look through civilizations that have actually no connection to 
um, the West or to Christianity, and you can find outbreaks of, of Gnostic speculation or Gnostic thinking yeah. Yeah. Uh, simply because, again, Vogelin will, you know, will argue a lot harder later on that, again, people are fragile, our consciousness is fragile, the world is uncertain, and in order to try to make sense out, out of it or to try to make it uh, manageable, yeah, people who have this you know, will engage in the Gnostic speculation, and then, of course, they'll try to recreate the world um, you know, in, in the image of their, you know, in, in the image of the speculations in order to make it both intelligible and also, you know, livable, at least by their own lights. Yeah. But, yeah, to uh, me, that's this, more... In this book, he's, he is arguing very strongly that it's, that it's because, uh, it's because of Christianity that this becomes, as it were, the only alternative. That is, um, you could think that, you know, not being... The, this kind of tension that that's sort of difficult to maintain in Christianity, that people could then fall back into paganism, but he says Christianity had so completely defeated paganism that it wasn't possible for people who who sort of wanted to give up on the tension of Orthodox Christianity to to return to sort of Greek or Roman polytheism to return to the anthropological symbolization of representation. Um, so instead, they turn to Gnosticism, which is uh, a Christian heresy. I mean, it, as you say, it, there's something uh, there's something in it that is sort of a temptation for human consciousness at any time. But the particular form of Gnosticism is closely tied to Christianity, um, at least in this argument here in this book. That is, it's because it's because uh, the world had become so thoroughly Christian that when it rejected Christianity, it could only reject it for a Christian heresy, which was then a form of Gnosticism. Right. right. And I think his idea, I don't know how much I would, I would buy the idea that there was an actual secret transmission from Gnostic teacher to Gnostic teacher all the way down to, you know, Marx or... Well, you yeah. have Hitler or something like that. Uh, well, let, let the me idea... play an advocate here for <laughs> for the secret transmission because I think there's the case is stronger than I thought before I read this book. I mean, he he talks about um, Joachim of Fiore here, who's right. a, an interesting figure. Joachim of Fiore was actually a confrere of mine originally. He was a Cistercian abbot before he <laughs> he broke from the cistercians and started his own reform movement but originally he was a an abbot of the cistercian monastery of fiore in italy um and he joachim um he comes to prominence at the same time as the albigensian movement in in southern france which is a very um clearly gnostic uh movement the albigensians uh they are Real, real, um, you know, dyed-in-the-wool Gnostics who really revive the the full dualistic picture that you get if you read Irenaeus against the Heresies and so on. Um, and Joachim is not that; he's not an Albigensian. But there does seem to be a certain affinity and maybe even an influence of the Albigensians on Joachim. Joachim gives you this theology of history where you have um, three three kingdoms, the kingdom of the father, uh, which is, begins with Abraham as sort of the Old Testament kingdom, 
where it's, it's sort of law and, and stern and, and all this stuff. Then you have the kingdom of the sun, which begins with the incarnation. Um, <laughs> and then there's, but that's not the end. And before the end, um, there's one more kingdom that's going to come before the end of the world. And that's the kingdom of the spirit, uh, in which sort of the, the, much of the institution of the apostolic church will become obsolete and everyone you know, people will stop marrying and giving in marriage. Everyone will become monks. The world will be sort of this, this one enormous monastery, and and everyone will live, you know, purely by the rule of charity without having uh, rulers or anything like that. So there's this kind of uh, semi-anarchistic idea of the whole world as a single c- communistic monastery, um, which is going to come about before the end of the world. So this is a third. Uh, this is. In this, he's contradicting St. Augustine's teaching in the City of God that uh, there's this, the time between the ascension and the second coming is the one age that we're in now, the Seculum, uh, which the Chiliasts falsely, uh, you know, the, this is what the, the real meaning of the thousand-year reign of Christ is, is the church. So Joachim is there um, going against the Augustinian position, and that uh, seems to be in some ways uh, influenced by, by the Albigensian Gnostics. Well, I, I do like oh. that he ties it to the, the uh, Muscovite idea that Moscow is somehow the third Rome. Right. And this actually explained more to me, uh, because, you know, you, you read that, and if you're not Russian Orthodox, you think, Moscow's the third Rome? Really? How? Like, just because you say so? Uh, but if if... If indeed there was a, almost a, a semi-Gnostic uh, uh, impetus behind it, where it's the third kingdom, so it's the final, it's heaven on earth, uh, it makes more sense of why it was uh, so attractive to them to call themselves the third Rome, beyond you know obvious reasons of, of uh, the importance of Rome, even under an Augustinian conception, the importance of Rome to to christianity right and i mean also too i mean there's you know for you know just to comment a little bit on the russian orthodox vision of that is that you know the idea was is that of course you know moscow is going to be the third rome and it's going to be the savior of, of holy orthodoxy and and there was even you know at, at points in time early on when that ideology became very prevalent that you know the notion was is that you know Russia would go back and retake Constantinople and, and free the Greek Orthodox and, uh, and, and you know, that, free slash periodically enslave. Right. But, you know, but, but that's also I mean, but that also ties into, I think, and I know Vogelin didn't talk about it, but, it, you know, that ties into in the, in the 1600s to the old believers schism that happens in the Russian Orthodox Church is because you have the Russian Orthodox Church declaring itself or Russia, I should say, as, as a whole but with, with the church involved, declaring itself as the third Rome and giving itself this sort of, you know, almost infallible status. And then in the middle of the 1600s, uh, you have a massive liturgical reform that goes on in the Russian Orthodox Church to make them... Uh, hold like... on, hold on. I, I've been given to understand online that uh, Orthodox liturgy has not ever changed since, <laughs> they, I don't know, yeah, have, have one, have... since the apostles wrote it down <laughs> exactly that way. Exactly. And then St. John Chrysostom uh, scribbled it down and that became yeah, the liturgy. Yeah, yeah. But no, but, but, but again, when, when the Russian Orthodox Church in the, in the 1600s undertook a liturgical reform and other reforms to its you know, vestments and so forth to make it more like the Greeks, 
Um, that's where you get the big schism of the church because, of course, you have a whole contingent of believers who are like, well, wait, you know, th this is the third third Rome. There, there needs to be no reform here to, in the Russian Orthodox Church. We, you know, we're doing it all correctly. And, you know, it causes this sort of break and this schism that, you know, still persists to this day um, because of that sort of exalted status. And, and also with, with the whole three three empires or three eras, you know, thinking, I mean, that you look at, I know Vogelin doesn't talk about him, but there's a, a, a socialist thinker, I think late 19th century named uh, Moses Hess, who was obviously Jewish, and but he posited the same thing, that there was the era of the father, the era of the son, and the era of the Holy Spirit was going to come. And of course, the era of the Holy Spirit would be this, you know, this, this great socialist utopia that would overtake all of mankind. So you certainly see that type of thinking breaking out at different right. points in time. So it's it's really this is really fascinating. But in the interest of time, because I have a, a, a baseball we, game, we have to wrap up <laughs> fairly soon. He talks about Hobbes in chapter five, uh, or he starts talking about Hobbes, and he he talks about Hooker first and the Puritans. Uh, let's go through that really quickly because that's sort of where the Gnosticism starts actually meeting the rubber of the road of of the Enlightenment and of of modernity. Well, it, he has a kind of interesting view of Hobbes here. Hobbes is kind of, in one way, he's reacting against um, these sort of millenarian Gnostic, uh, extreme right. Puritans, the Levellers, the you know the 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 more violent Roundheads, and so on. But the wars of religion is is yeah. are so horrific that he has to you know step in. Yeah, and he's reacting particularly against Gnostic elements here. That is, Virgilian sees the the Levellers and so on as Gnostics in some sense. Um, but Hobbes, what he ends up doing is, is sort of secularizing Gnosticism rather than going, going back to orthodoxy. Um, what you get in Hobbes is uh, a secularization of, of politics where uh, politics is not a matter of conforming to the order of the divine as conceived of as in any way exterior to the human, but it's it's a, a purely human project. But what what ends up happening is that that leads to what Vogelin calls kind of a redivinization of politics. Um, yeah, I mean, here I have a, a couple of of questions and qualifications for Vogelin, but the idea seems to be that in no, Hobbes it's very get, interesting uh, a kind of yeah, you get a, a hypostasis of the state in Hobbes, the Leviathan, um, which Vogelin sees as being kind of central then for the, for all subsequent developments, even though you don't have the, the kind of particular political viewpoint of Hobbes, that is, it's no longer a defense of absolute monarchy and, and people that come after Hobbes. Still, you have the kind of idea of the state as this sort of hypostasis. And Vogelin is saying this... This idea is kind of a re-divinization of politics. That is, he sees Augustine, and here, here I think you have to qualify what he says in a number of ways. But Vogelin sees Augustine as kind of um, separating politics from the divine in this sense, that uh, the politics becomes a purely temporal matter. That is, it's the administration of, of things in this seculum in this time between and the actual fulfillment is not going to come through politics but it's going to come through 
the higher kind of politics, it's the city of God. That is, it's not going to come through uh, earthly politics. Um, I would qualify that in a number of ways, but uh, but I think there is something to the idea that Hobbes, um, that what Hobbes' secularization does is in a way divinize the state, that is, make it the locus of human fulfillment, ultimate human fulfillment. Right. So his, his it's sort of unexpected because he, he uh, criticizes, Hobbes ends up, in trying to respond to this problem, he ends up just importing it all over again. Uh, and after he talks about Hobbes, he also talks about uh, uh, liberalism a little bit. G- G- Gabe and Potter, what does he say about liberalism and Gnosticism? Is he just unabashedly recommending liberalism as the way to get to uh, get out of this uh, this fight, the, a better way of doing what Hobbes was trying to do? Or what does he actually say? You go, Gabe. Uh, well, again, I I think when it comes to the question of liberalism, and again, I apologize because I'm sort of probably conflating multiple works of Vogel in here because he, he don't so, worry, no one will uh, no one will call no, you out on it. Here. Okay, fair enough. Um, I, I, there are points in time in Vogelin's writings where he seems to have a very uh, he, he gives a salutary nod to liberalism, and at other points in time. He seems to be very critical of it. Um, basically, you know, the, the idea of, of liberal neutrality and you know the, the, somehow that it's going to allow people with conflicting views of the world to you know live together in some sort of harmony because you have these uh, basic procedures in place for you know, electing representatives. Yeah, because he the end of this book does end up kind of praising American democracy and English democracy as the the best we can do is the most adequate. Uh, contemporary representations of the truth of the soul right well keep in mind too i mean the, the, so these these the, the book um, arises out of similar to leo strauss's natural right and history it arises out of the walgreen lectures which i know uh maritain also um, gave those as well and they right. were supposed to be you know salutary towards democracy and you know it's supposed to and, and liberalism and um you certainly see that i think at least a little bit as a nod in, in strauss's book as well so i'm not entirely clear that Bogolin really bought into that. Um, and again, later on in his writings, you, you'll see him be much more critical of, of liberalism and liberal institutions and liberal yeah. proceduralism. Yeah, well, I mean, he sees... Maybe I will read one, one little passage from the very end of the book here on page 188. He says, um, The corrosion of Western civilization through Gnosticism is a slow process extending over a thousand years. The several Western political societies now have a different relation to this slow process according to the time at which their national revolutions occurred. When the revolution occurred early, a less radical wave of Gnosticism was its carrier, and the resistance of the forces of tradition was at the same time more effective. When the revolution occurred at a later date, a more radical wave was its carrier, and the environment of tradition was already corroded more deeply by the general advance of modernity. The English Revolution in the 17th century occurred at a time when Gnosticism had not yet undergone its radical secularization. We have seen that the left-wing Puritans were eager to present themselves as Christians, though of an especially pure sort. When the adjustments of 1690 were reached, England had preserved the institutional culture of aristocratic parliamentism 
as well as the mores of a Christian commonwealth, now sanctioned as national institutions. The American Revolution, though its debate was already strongly affected by the psychology of enlightenment, also had the good fortune of coming to its close within the institutional and Christian climate of the Ancien Régime. In the French Revolution, then, the radical wave of Gnosticism was so strong that it permanently split the nation into the laicist half that based itself on the revolution and the conservative half that tried and tries to salvage the Christian tradition. The German Revolution, finally, in an environment without strong institutional traditions, brought for the first time into full play economic materialism, racist biology, corrupt psychology, scientism, and technological ruthlessness in brief modernity without restraint. It's it's amusing here. Those damn Germans. The last example. Yeah, he doesn't go to the Russian. He's building it up, and you're thinking, all right, now now we're going to get the Bolsheviks, but instead he goes to the Nazis as sort of the the fulfillment of modernity. (laughs) But the point is, I mean, there, um, I think, you know, it's not entirely false that you have uh, the... The revolution in England, the glorious revolution or whatever, that is a kind of uh, modern revolution, Gnostic in in Vogelin's sense, but it's not as radically secular as then the French Revolution will be uh, two generations later. Um, And and also, uh, uh, he points out in in other passages that these so-called secular revolutions are themselves deeply uh, liturgical and theological in in many senses because they are ultimately because of his ideas about Gnosticism. Uh, So we've just barely scratched the surface. There's so much more to say. But uh, I actually have to be running now. But why don't we wrap up? Yeah, one final point is, I mean, the reason why I think I was expecting him to go to the Russian Revolution and a way— in a way, his his point would have, I think, been stronger if he had gone to the Russian Revolution. Although, there's, of course, it's more amusing and it's sort of mischievous for him to go to the Nazis. But, <laughs> but in communism, um, in in Marxist communism, you see very strongly this sort of redivinization of the political, or maybe to put it more accurately, you see a divinization of the human there. That is, and that's similar to Gnostic in the sense that the Gnostics think that God is actually inside of them. And for Marx, what the only divine thing in a way is human consciousness. And God becomes all in all, that is, when man becomes all in all, that is, when class distinctions are abolished and you have a, a truly equal society. And so there's a strong theological uh, pathos to, to all Marxist revolutions, and especially the Russian Revolution, which is kind of the... The strongest one. I, I would agree with that. I guess that's a. I know we have to wrap up. So as a final note, if you want to see, um, I, I'm sure Vogelin wasn't on the forefront of the filmmaker's mind, but if you want to see this played out in a very uh, hilarious way, um, watch Death of Stalin, which came out I think last year. Um, yes, it's, it's so great. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a perfect parody of of the sort of you know divinization <laughs> of, of politics. And, and so yeah, I, I can't recommend it enough for you know if you want. Um, some, Vogelianism on a popular scale. You can yeah. find it there. <laughs> Surprisingly great movie. <laughs> yes. Uh, about that, la- it's a laugh a minute about without without really pulling many punches about the last days of Stalin. All right. 
thank you so much. We just scratched the surface, like I said. I feel like there's so much more to say, but unfortunately, time is limited. Uh, Until next time.